You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. The influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. In a sense, Bernie Sanders has already won. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. It's USMCA Day, folks. President Trump signing into law. The USMCA trade deal, he says it's a big win for the economy. We'll dive into the specifics, plus a deep dive into the CFTC. I've got an exclusive interview with Heath Tarbert. He's the Commodity Futures Trading Commission chairman, and he's going to give us the lowdown on a new deregulatory policy that, yes, could also impact agriculture And you're not going to want to miss it because it really juxtaposed with the USMCA is a fascinating look about a one area at the CFTC where energy and agriculture agree on. And, of course, we're following 2020, the latest developments in the march up to the all-important Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary and impeachment. Are they going to have witnesses? Lots to get through. The coronavirus still buzzing in the background. Lots, lots to get through. But first, let's get a check of the headlines from my good friend, Nancy Lyons. Nance? Thanks, Kevin. Well, the next phase of the impeachment trial is underway today. Senators submitting written question and then eat. Each side is having a chance to state their positions and to immediately offer their rebuttals. While answering one of the questions today, lead impeachment manager Adam Schiff explained why the behavior of the president is corrupt. The reality is for a president to withhold military aid from an ally uh, or in the hypothetical to withhold it to benefit an adversary, to target their political opponent is wrong and corrupt, period. Uh, End of story. Deputy White House counsel Patrick Philbin argued against calling witnesses in the impeachment trial. What do we think will happen if some of these witnesses are subpoenaed now that they never bothered to litigate about? Then there'll be the litigation now, most likely. And then that will take time while this chamber is still stuck sitting as a court of impeachment. That's not the way to do things. Well, before today's proceedings began, Lev Parnas was on Capitol Hill. Remember, he's the indicted former associate of Rudy Giuliani, who said he tried to help the president get Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. Well, he says Republican senators should weigh the evidence and not fall in lockstep with the Trump administration. The Trump world is like a cult, and a lot of these senators are in the cult. So I don't know if anything could change some of their minds, but hopefully the public will know what's going on. And hopefully maybe some of them, you know, if we get witnesses and they really hear the truth, maybe, you know, the conscience will overwhelm them. 
Tomorrow will be another day of questions for both legal teams. Then Friday, the likely vote on whether to call witnesses. D.C. leaders are wasting little time coming out against Jack Evans' attempt to return to the D.C. Council. Bloomberg's Greg Jarrett reports. Nancy, the former Ward 2 councilman, filed papers to run for his old seat less than two weeks after he resigned in the face of multiple ethics allegations. Evans has long denied any wrongdoing, but Mayor Muriel Bowser and City Council Chair Phil Mendelson have both spoken out against Evans' bid. The special election to fill the vacant Ward 2 seat is set for June. A Prince George's County police officer is being held without bond, charged with murder. After allegedly shooting a handcuffed man inside a police cruiser, a district court judge ruled today Corporal Michael Owen is a danger to the community. Owen is a 10-year veteran of the department and has been involved in two earlier shootings, one of which was fatal. His next court date is February 28th. A grand jury has indicted a Baltimore County Sheriff's Office employee on a second-degree rape charge. Authorities say 54-year-old Morton Stanley Winkler Jr. was taken into custody last night. He was later released on his own recognizance. Winkler was indicted last week. The warrant for his arrest was served yesterday. The department was apparently notified of the allegation against Winkler in November of 2018. The grand jury indictment is sealed, prohibiting details in the case from being released. We go to Bloomberg's Tracy Jockey. No interest rate hike today or any day until the election is over. That's the decision and the forecast from Federal Reserve policymakers after they wrapped up their meeting. Investors lost interest in a stock market rally not long after that. The Dow went from a gain of more than 200 points at the peak to 12 points at the closing bell at 28,734. The Nasdaq up five points at 92.75. The S&P down three. Even with heavy hitters like Boeing, Apple, and McDonald's leading the upside. The world's second most valuable automaker remains a profitable one. Tesla is reporting its second straight quarterly profit, and it's promising more profits and more vehicles in 2020. Tesla says it will deliver a half million electric cars this year. Number one Toyota makes almost that many cars in a month. Under Armour nearly lost its biggest star. The New York Times reports Steph Curry was frustrated back in 2018 with slowing sales of the Curry 3 shoes and almost left the partnership. Under Armour reportedly revamped the deal to create a separate business around Curry and give him more say in the development of his shoes. You're up to date on business from the Beltway to Baltimore. I'm Tracy Jonke. This is Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Thanks, Tracy. Global news 24 hours a day on air and on quick take by Bloomberg. Powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Nancy Lyons. Back to you, Kevin. Thank you, Nance. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says that there's a quote-unquote uphill fight to get witnesses. So we still don't know if there's going to be witnesses. Yet Last night I was on air. And we thought that we got this report from Dow Jones. Remember this? Dow Jones reports that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said behind closed doors that they need that they don't have the votes to block witnesses. And now Schumer from New York, he's saying that it's an uphill fight to get witnesses. Take a listen to Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Democrat from New York, speaking earlier today in the Senate. The Republicans could call Hunter Biden today. They have the votes. Trump and McConnell could call for Hunter Biden today. They don't want to. They know it would turn things into a circus. So the, the pretty much the point here coming from the left is that, okay, they get it. If they get 
uh, John Bolton to testify, it's going to be a one-off, a quid pro quo, for lack of a better word, in order to get Hunter Biden to testify. Two guests with me for the hour, Al Motter, he's a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek Democratic Insider, and Brian Darling, former senior communications director for the Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky and founder of Liberty Government Affairs. All right, Brian, start with you. You just heard there Schumer saying that Republicans think it would turn it into a circus if Hunter were to testify. I don't know. I kind of disagree. I think that Democrats are saying – Democrats know. I mean I, don't, I still don't think Democrats are prepared for a longer trial after Friday. I I agree. I It's infrequent that I agree with Chuck Schumer, but I agree <laughs> with him. I think Chuck Schumer is right in this case because – uh, and I think Mitch McConnell, maybe he's uh, setting himself up to be a hero because I don't see any upside for Republicans calling any witnesses. Um, ultimately, if this is drawn out, it's only going to hurt uh, the swing state Republicans that are objecting the most right now for this to happen. I mean, Cory Gardner does not want to have a long drawn out trial. He wants to get back to his home state campaign and talk about policy. He does not want to be talking about impeachment and, and watch this litigation destroy his campaign for the next month. Al, I, I'm, your thoughts in terms of whether or not witnesses would benefit one side or the other? Well, with the exception of the vice president, former Vice President Biden, witnesses would unequivocally benefit the Democrats because they would, most of them at least, be able to provide more information on a firsthand basis that President Trump chose his own personal interest over the country's interest, at least as alleged by the House managers. But I agree with both of you that it's unlikely. I think that Mitch McConnell doesn't say anything publicly without great forethought and planning. And when he said last night that he doesn't have the votes, that was a call to arms to his caucus to unite uh, and get together on this notion that it's not in their interest to have witnesses. And ultimately, a, a lot of them uh, are going to have to probably say publicly that while they didn't like the president's actions, it didn't arise to the level of an impeachable offense warranting conviction and removal. And as long as they can thread that needle, which is the Alan Dershowitz argument, why then call witnesses and make it tougher, um, as Brian said, for people like Cory Gardner? You know, I, I think Cory Gardner is, is definitely someone to watch. I was struck by Joe Manchin. Did you guys see this? So I, I, I was on the Twitter, the Twitter uh, earlier today at the White House, actually, covering USMCA, and, and I this popped. Senator Joe Manchin was on MSNBC, and he said that he absolutely thinks that, that Hunter Biden should testify, which here's a centrist Democrat who is in a deeply, deeply Republican state, a state that President Trump carried by like 20-plus percentage points back in 2016. And now he's saying that he thinks Hunter Biden should testify. That, to me, was a warning siren because there were a handful of those Democrats who voted with Republicans in the House of Representatives when push came to shove. And I'm very interested to see what Mr. Manchin of West Virginia does, Brian. Well, we've seen many Republicans and Democrats go off the t official talking points. I mean, yeah. Johnson talking about the potential for witnesses. We've seen it on both sides. And I think that what's happening is the senators want to look reasonable. They want everybody to think that they're actually open to this process, having witnesses, having more testimony. But I don't think Republicans have any intent to do it because they just don't see a need for it. We all know what the outcome is going to be. The president is not going to be removed from office. Why waste any more time? Al, if this? you're Joe Manchin, what's your play? 
Joe Manchin's going to do what he wants to do, number one. He's not going to listen to anyone else telling him what to do. With yeah, the- but just between us. No, that, that's, I'm serious. I mean, he yeah. does, Chuck Schumer could say, please don't do this with Hunter Biden, and he's going to say, I'm going to do what's best for me in West Virginia. Yeah. And I think his play is always down that road, and it gets people on the left very angry with him. But frankly, it makes him more authentic, quite honestly. And I think that you could put Kirsten Cinema and Doug Jones in that same bucket yeah. from Arizona and Alabama, respectively. And I, and I think that's a great point. I think with Manchin, I mean, there's been rumblings, you know, Always that maybe he would be interested in being the energy secretary. You know, I mean, the yeah, state's yeah. already Republican, Brian. Well, this vote would help. I mean, he voted for Kavanaugh. Yep. Uh, you look at Doug Jones as scrambling to save himself in Alabama. He might vote with Trump. I think Manchin is – I think he's very likely to vote with Trump. And Kirsten Cinema of Arizona is another one who may be – you know, is somebody who's more moderate who may make that play to show that she's not a – um, right down the line, Democrat, a more moderate Democrat. And we don't have many moderates in either party. It's interesting to see that the, actually the Democratic caucus in the Senate of moderates has expanded by one or two. I think this is something years. the media has missed. And I, I, I'm very remiss, or I'm hesitant always to, to offer a critique, but, and I'm not going to, but I, I mean, I, in terms of the, what we, those three senators that we just talked about, Manchin, Cinema, and Jones. We've heard so much about the Republicans who are faltering from from McConnell, but we'd never really talk about, Al, the dynamics of the Democratic Party in this race. I think it's very conceivable that one to three of them vote uh, to acquit, at least on one of the charges. Yeah. Uh, Kirsten Sinema, who I know and is, I think, a great senator, has a challenge in winning races in a place like Arizona. There's nothing wrong with representing your constituents. And the argument that the president – did something wrong but perhaps shouldn't be removed because there is an election in 11 months or nine months is not a bad argument intellectually. So if a Democratic senator decides that's the position they want to take, they should not be ripped apart for it by partisans. Oh, wow. All right. Great stuff, everybody. We're coming up. We're going to talk more policy and politics. Plus, an exclusive interview with Heath Tarbert, the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. You don't want to miss that. Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Everybody said this was a deal that could not be done. Too complicated, too big, couldn't be done, we got it done. That was President Trump speaking earlier today at the White House where he signed into law the USMCA. Meanwhile, Senator Bernie Sanders, Democratic presidential candidate, said that he would quote-unquote immediately renegotiate the USMCA. He was one of the only Democratic presidential candidates to vote against it. USMCA passed with bipartisan support. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. Al Motter's here. Brian Darling's here. Al, you're a Democratic insider. USMCA, you were telling me in the break you were with, you were had dinner with Speaker Pelosi on Monday. What did she say about it? It was interesting. Uh, she talked about um, 
how a lot of folks on the left are very critical of the fact that she gave the president a victory, so to speak. And her response was, uh, yes, but we ate his lunch in the negotiations. Ooh. And, you know, we got so much that we wanted on health care issues, on prescription drugs, on worker protections um, and the like, that it was a deal she couldn't turn down because it was a deal that she never thought a Republican would sign on to. And so she was quite euphoric about the, the law. And as she pointed out, we're ultimately brought to Washington to achieve results, not win political fights. It's interesting because Schumer voted against it and Pelosi was for it. Yeah. So the truth lies somewhere in between. All right. Earlier today on Bloomberg Television, I spoke with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission chairman, Heath Tarbert, about a new rule that they have that impacts uh, oil as well as farmers. Uh, take a listen about this new CTFTC, CFTC rule. Here he is. First of all, speculative position limits were something that, that Congress passed uh, 10 years ago as part of the Dodd-Frank Act. And the goal essentially is to not allow people that are coming in to our markets purely to speculate, they're not hedging anything, to get positions above a certain threshold. And the reason we're putting them in place is to prevent things like corners and squeezes. Mm -hmm. But they were never meant to focus on anyone who's actually hedging. And so prior proposals didn't sort of get that right. And so we have really focused on American agriculture, the energy sector, to make sure that if you're going to these markets and you're actually hedging risk, you can do so. I find this interesting because on the same day that President Trump signed into law the USMCA, uh, you've got this now, this new development. And candidly, based upon my reporting, two industries that sometimes butt heads now appear to have a significant deregulatory pushback, oil and uh, grain. This impacts them. I think this is a tremendous victory for yeah. the agriculture industry and probably in the energy industry as well. Because what we do here is, is we do make that differentiation between hedge funds and other people that are in these markets to speculate. And we need those people in our markets because uh, the presence of more traders provides liquidity. But at the same time, we think their position should be limited at a certain point. And we want to make sure, though, that hedgers, agriculture, farmers, ranchers, energy companies that are actually going to these markets to hedge risks so they can put power on in our houses can do so. I've been in Washington covering financial services for something like eight plus years now, and I'm struck. You mentioned Dodd-Frank 2010. Why did this take so long? Well, so we have had countless proposals, uh, countless drafts, four actual proposals that four. were put before the commission. We had one, only one that was finalized, and unfortunately, that was struck down by the courts. Mm -hmm. So here we are. I think so. That was one issue that that the one proposal that actually was finalized was struck down by courts. But the bigger issue, in my opinion, and the one that Congress is most concerned about, is that previous position, uh, previous proposals did not include the right hedging exemptions. Your critics are saying this will be a, this will be good for big business, but how does this impact small business? How does this how does this help? Average folks and average traders. No, I was out in Kansas over the summer, mm -hmm. and I actually met with a farmer who said she uses the futures markets to hedge. And I don't uh, think people get that, I, I, especially in the in the in the aftermath of USMCA and everything that we've done with the U.S. and China and how that relates. Farmers in the heartland are very much paying attention to this. They really are, because the way it works is the farmer needs to hedge his or her exposure. Now, sometimes they do that directly in the futures markets, like the farmer I talked to. She does it directly. But more often than not, they'll enter into a forward agreement with their local grain elevator. The local grain elevator will enter into agreement with a large agricultural company. And that agricultural company will use the futures markets to hedge their exposure. So ultimately, that price stability goes all the way back down the chain to farmers and ranchers. It really is fascinating, especially I think that, the, that Wall Street has really uh, woken up to see 
uh, how Heartland America is engaging in the financial services sector. Uh, switching gears, what's next on the to-do list? What's next on the to-do list? So, so first of all, this is actually our seventh open meeting since I joined six months ago. We have been working ter- you know, tremendously hard uh, to get things done, to get them done in the right way. We've done cross-border rules proposals, mm-hmm. capital proposals. What's next on the agenda are a couple of different things. First of all, swap data reporting. It's an area that I think everyone agrees has been a complete mess. We have hundreds and hundreds of fields that the U.S. requires, the CFTC requires different fields than the SEC, the Europeans require different fields from us. It's a bit of a a global turf war. There's a global issue, and and there's so many fields, and people are confused. Mm -hmm. So we want to focus on that, um, streamlining it to the point where we get the data we need, it, there's, a, there's a broad overlap between what other regulators are asking for, and we have a common base of information. So that's a key agenda item. The other thing we're doing is that for 37 years, since 1983, we have not changed our regulations to update them for bankruptcy. So my concern is, is that, look, things are going great now, but every now and again we may have a futures commission merchant a fail, and that, that person has customer money, and we want to make sure those customers are protected. So things like that that people haven't thought about for decades, I'm putting on the agenda. And you and I talked about this offline when you first got into your position, just about the, the increasing role of cryptocurrency and how uh, that's something that you that your team is, is also looking into. Just quickly, where, where's, where, give us an update on that. Well, the CFTC, I've said, mm-hmm. I really think, uh, not only in the digital assets themselves, but in that underlying blockchain technology, Kevin, I want the United States of America to lead in this. Mm -hmm. So I want to encourage innovation. And it's interesting because uh, commodities are what we regulate, particularly derivatives on commodities. We were just talking about, yeah. Exactly. But right now, uh, the two biggest types of digital assets, Bitcoin and Ether, actually fall within our jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So we we are doing a lot in the digital asset space. We are seeing exchanges starting to list. Certainly, we've seen Bitcoin futures, both cash settled as well as physically delivered. My guess is we're going to see Ether futures as well. And as things start to migrate into the commodity space, we'll see even more. That was Heath Tarbert. He is the Community, or the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CFTC uh, chairman. He's got a fascinating job in terms of uh, really regulating all the hedge funds and insider trading cases and, and whatnot. Uh, and he spoke to me exclusively about a new rule that they have coming out. You can watch it on Bloomberg TV and, of course, online. Coming up, we'll dive back into the politics 2020 campaign update with Al Motter and Brian Darling. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I have no idea who I'm rooting for this weekend. I don't think I can root for Andy Reid. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I love that song. Beautiful day by you 2 I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. My guests with me are Al Mater, partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek, a Democratic insider. Brian Darling, former – I don't know why I do that. That's, <laughs> it's kind of weird. But I can't help it because I because I watch all of the attack ads that you guys design in your careers that you know flood the airwaves, and I, I guess part of me thinks that I should be like the voice over that, like <laughs> Brian Darling, former comms director for Senator Rand Paul and founder of Liberty Government Affairs. Brian, what's your favorite U two song? Ooh, putting me on the spot. Yes, I don't. Uh, I want to interview Bono really bad. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You're stumping me. You don't have a favorite U2 song? No. I, I'm not a huge U2 fan. Why? I don't know. They're okay. That's I'm not, a, I'm not a really big <laughs> You know, I should have suspected that from a New England Patriots guy. Oh. Uh, couldn't resist. Al, what's your favorite U2 song? Probably one. Oh, great song. Great song. And Mary J. Blige did a, uh, a uh, cover of it. I have so many favorite U2 songs, but that whole album, All That You Can't Leave Behind, remains my favorite. And Walk On off of that album is also my favorite. All right, enough music chatter. Uh, let's talk about 2020. We're a couple of days away from the caucus. Bernie's looking pretty good. Andrew Yang talked to my colleague at Bloomberg today, Joe Weisenthal, and Andrew Yang said that his supporters could go to Bernie if he doesn't do good in the Iowa caucus. Well, uh, if you look at the polls, they're all over the place. It's impossible to predict. I mean, some of them have, uh, you know, more of a younger demographic. Some of them are tr- uh, basically are stressing the older demographic, and they have Biden doing better. It's just a weird situation where, you know, if you have a ton of young people show up, then, uh, you know, we could have Bernie Sanders winning in Iowa. But it's just we don't know what the weather's going to be like. We don't know, um, you know, how that's all going to play out. So, with all of that's going on, I look at all of what's happened in the past with the Republicans and trying to predict and all the very close races there and Republicans that win Iowa not going on to win the win the nomination. You know, it, it's it's just a crapshoot. Al? A couple things. One, uh, I didn't know that Andrew Yang had that many supporters in Iowa. He does. Oh, my gosh. You're going to get me in trouble on Twitter. <laughs> no, that's just no, me. I'll be Andrew Yang has a ton of supporters out there in the world. Well, to the extent that, the Yang um, gang. that they're going to help Bernie, that makes sense to me because he, he's for universal income. So that's something that Bernie would be more likely to, to espouse as well. In terms of the caucuses, I think, number one, we're going to have a surprise. Uh, I think that um, either Biden or Buttigieg or Warren is going to finish behind – Klobuchar, uh, maybe two of them might, and I don't think Biden's going to win the caucuses. Like Bert, look, Iowa does well with Democrats who've been there before, and Bernie almost won last time. Some His own people think he did win, and that the Clinton folks in the party took it from him. And he's put in the time, and he's got the message uh, that is most progressive and is resonating, and he doesn't even need young people to win Iowa because he didn't have them that much last time, and he almost won. I think Bernie's going to win the state. Really? I do. Uh, what are the expectations for Biden? Dangerous. Really? I mean, if he finishes worse than second in both Iowa and New Hampshire, that's a real problem for his campaign because money will start to draw, 
dry up. He uh, the other day uh, they released a, a, a feed that they're going to back off in New Hampshire to some extent. They better do well in Iowa if that's true, because then they got to go to Nevada, which is another caucus state. And caucuses are tougher for institutional candidates like Biden or former secretary. But nationally, he he's polling so hard. That so changes, hard, so high. That changes when you lose repeatedly. I see. I agree. Uh, this but is. It, but is there a chance that he just? He actually performs as the polling indicates, and he wins Iowa, and right. he wins New Hampshire, and he runs a table. I mean, is this all just navel gazing? And no, I don't getting think all so. excited. Why, about why don't you think it's navel gazing? So, first of all, the polling um, on average has Bernie up a little bit in Iowa. Biden is trailing significantly in New Hampshire on average. Um, and if you look at uh, some of the betting sites like Predict It, which are actually quite good at. at this is why I love Al Mater. Bernie is the <laughs> this favorite. Is why I love right now. it. He's the the slight favorite, um, and so it's not navel gazing. And I mean, the vice president's a great man. He's done great things for our country. I hope he does really well. I just think that if he doesn't do well in Iowa, it's going to be a problem. We're, what's we got to go down to the casino? Let's do it. I'm kidding. Am I going to get in trouble for saying that? See, where I grew up, they put in a Harris right in Delco, and. Uh, so anyway, that that was like the running joke. Gambling is legal now, Kevin. Is it? See, I don't want to get in trouble. I, you know, I, I play it by the book. Hey, not that book. Okay, moving on. Uh, <laughs> um, that was a really lame joke. Okay, so expectations. We covered that for Bernie. We co- or uh, for Biden. We covered Bernie having the momentum. But I'm interested in Buttigieg and Klobuchar, Bry. I wonder where they land in this and what their play is, and and then we'll talk more. But let's let's for right now talk Klobuchar and Buttigieg. Well, I I am not believing the hype with uh, Amy Klobuchar. I just don't think it's See, real. I totally disagree. I think she's going to crash and burn. And I, you look at um, Buttigieg. I mean, you know, he's he's another one. You don't know how he's been trending up, trending down. He's had some really bad stra- uh, stretches. But, you know, what do I know? I'm a Republican. But me looking at Iowa, I think that. Biden is going to do pretty well. I think if you look at the caucuses and look back to, to to how Bernie did in the last cycle, he did really well in the caucuses, so he may win Iowa. But I think he's going to have a real hard time in primaries. All right, I let's think he talk, goes into New Hampshire weak even if he wins Iowa. Let's talk, uh, let's talk uh, Warren. Al, or, or you know, I mean, what's I, I just Warren, Warren's an interesting candidate because she caught fire and she, you know, she had a plan for everything and was the darling of the left. And I think Bernie's taken away some of her oomph, so to speak, and she's under a lot of pressure right here. You know, I said earlier, I think she could finish behind Klobuchar and Buttigieg, for example. That's one hypothetical, which would be really bad for her heading into New Hampshire. I, I don't agree with Brian at all about New Hampshire and Bernie. Bernie crushed Hillary in New Hampshire by 21 points. He's currently leading by double digits in the polls. There are very few scenarios where he does not do well in New Hampshire. And if she can't do well in New Hampshire, which is her neighboring state, or Iowa, again, if you finish third or worse in two in a row, that ain't good. But isn't isn't Warren, isn't she going to dig into some of the Bernie support? She's from Massachusetts, the next state over, as is Bernie, and she's – Swimming in the same stream. I mean, they're both so democratic socialists for the most part. 
<laughs> I, I, she's more institutional, but she is very far to the left. I, I, she does dig in a little bit, but it's not – I mean the polls – primary polls are, are a bit more accurate than caucus polls, first of all, going back to who's going to win Iowa. We don't know, and I don't, I don't trust the polls there. I agree with Kevin. There could be a surprise. And as far as New Hampshire goes, the people out there – I've canvassed there. They are hardcore Bernie people. They love that guy. Love him. They love that it guy. Reminds had, me of Trump. I had so many doors slammed in my face just because I was for somebody else. Really? And I will tell you one other thing. You said it reminds you of Trump. The caucus, go, the primary voters in 2016 would often say to me, "I can't decide between Bernie and Trump." Yeah, no, no, no. That, I saw that on the trail, and no one, and no one in Washington understands that because that's that's where I grew up. Is is people deciding between Bernie and Trump, and but and and I that's a real. There are a lot of Republicans rooting for Bernie too. Go Bernie, go. Well, they both understand. <laughs> no, but 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 I and I hear the, the I hear the, the the humor in that. But yeah. what what we're, what Al and I are talking about are people who are literally deciding the, the, between Bernie and Trump. Both yeah. Bernie and Trump and Warren yeah. understand that most Americans think Washington sucks and is is rigged and is, I don't know is if you can productive. say that. Please don't get me in trouble. Go ahead. And, and so they, they – Apologies they have, if that offended anyone. I apologize. Thank you. And, and so I, <laughs> they're on to something there because people are dissatisfied and people in our generation or mine at least, I'm older than you, think that our kids <laughs> I'm an are not soul, likely well. to uh, be as well off as we are for the first time in American history. Well, that's scary. And so that's why people like Bernie um, resonate. Uh, and China, I, I actually also think China is is a, is a huge driving force of that, and and it, it's it, it's I am interested to see how Senator Sanders starts talking again about China and General Secretary Xi Jinping on the campaign trail. Uh, quickly, I do want to note the results of a Monmouth poll that just came out, released Wednesday. The poll of likely Democratic caucus goers found Joe Biden leading with twenty three percent, closely followed by Bernie Sanders at twenty one percent. Buttigieg at 16% and Warren with 15%. Amy, double digits at 10%. Uh, so that's according to the Monmouth University poll. I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal. Emma Kinnery's reporting. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Coming up, Roger Goodell gave that press conference. He talked about Colin Kaepernick, plus three other things on our radar. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I think if a team decides uh, that Colin Kaepernick or any other player can help their team win, that's what they'll do. Uh, they want to win and they make those decisions individually in the best interest of their club. That was Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, who gave his uh, State of the League address at the Super Bowl uh, down in Florida. Of course, the Super Bowl is this weekend. He was talking about Colin Kaepernick. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. My panel for the hour, Al Mater, Brian Darling. Al, of course, is a Democratic insider. Brian knows everything about the Rand Paul wing. Of the Republican Party again with the voice, Kev. Like, yes. what is what is going on? I gotta stop. It's weird. <laughs> um, uh, who are you guys rooting for this weekend? Uh, San Francisco. I'm Sam. a Jimmy Garoppolo fan because he's a former Patriot, and uh, I'm not a huge Kansas City fan. Okay, but this is the one time Brian and I agree on football. So uh, that's awesome. Okay, I'm rooting for the Niners. Who are you rooting for, Al? 
Sorry to disappoint you, but I got to go with Mahomes. He's the most electric player in football he right is. now, and it's great to watch him play. It's going to be a great game. I just hope that the you know they're going to have all those ads. Trump has an ad. Michael Bloomberg has an ad. Oh, yeah. I'm like, can we just have one day where we can watch a game without ads? Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be? And yeah. like, who really is going to watch the game? And change their mind off of a Super Bowl. <laughs> exactly. ad. Well, also, the Super Bowl ads are the thing a lot of people watch the game for, and they yeah, don't but want not for politics. No, like, exactly. no, we, we have enough political ads. And J Lo is doing the halftime show with Shakira. That'll be interesting. Yeah, is, yeah. yeah, could be good. I guess I should do the disclaimer. Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News. All right, what's on your radar, Brian? Well, 5G and the big fight over yes. 5G and what's going on. I'm obsessed over this, and we haven't really gotten too much time to talk about it on this show this week because we've been busy with the Jared Kushner interview and everything. But go ahead. Well, Mike Pompeo has complained that uh, um, our friends in, in Great Britain are allowing Huawei, the Chinese company, basically to come in and help set up 5G over there. And, and we're having a big fight domestically because a lot of members of Congress and a lot of Americans, a lot of the the, um, the, the, the providers here are upset and nervous that if you allow China into the United States to set up 5G, it's going to set back our own our own companies. It's a competitiveness issue, and it's also a national security issue because we worry about the national security of letting the Chinese set up any of these uh, networks. It's kind of like a draft. I mean, that's how I describe it to people. China and the U.S. have been trying to build the 5G networks, not just here in the United States, but also abroad, and they've been competing. And so the U.K. and the European Union have defied the United States' demands to exclude China's biggest maker of telecommunications gear for the 5G networks. And the U.K., following Angela Merkel's lead of Germany and the Italians— and no one knows what the Aussies are going to do. Right. Not that they're in Europe. I do know. I could point <laughs> out on a map <laughs> that <laughs> Christine Verada laughed. She's our executive producer. And I don't. I, uh, that Australia is not in Europe. But anyway, uh, the five G. Um, <laughs> yeah, she did laugh. Uh, <laughs> the five G networks and Europe—they're breaking away. So that's a great thing to have on your radar. It's on mine as well. Uh, Al, what's on your radar? Well, you guys are talking about China and the United States not cooperating on wireless. At least they are cooperating finally on the coronavirus. Yes. Oh, thankfully. And, you know, that's a great thing because this is a real threat. I mean, you look at the news and corporations are uh, shutting down thousands and thousands of stores. Airlines are canceling flights. So I'm glad the CDC is now going to be working with China to help us hopefully get a handle on this. This story is baffling. I mean, and and just a headline crossed over the Bloomberg Terminal written by my good friend Josh Wingrove, our White House reporter here. He does excellent work uh, for Bloomberg's uh, White House team, along with, of course, Jennifer Jacobs and and, um, that whole team. I would highly encourage your listeners not to watch Gwyneth Paltrow and Outbreak right now because they might get <laughs> You're right. Well, this is like my I – mean, well, let's – so anyway, Josh has a story before we get off on that tangent. It keeps you up. I know. keeps you up at night, doesn't it? Um, Christine Verano, our executive producer, she goes, I watched it Friday. It was trending on Netflix. Oh. <laughs> you weren't the first one, Al, to have that idea with the coronavirus. I just want to know why the heck it's called coronavirus. Yeah. But anyway, I couldn't tell you that. Anyway, so – Laughing aside, Larry Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, uh, he said that the United States is going to send experts to China to help the nation contain the outbreak of the coronavirus that has killed at least 169 people and infected thousands. And we're laughing about it and we shouldn't be because, you know, we're not laughing about that. But, you know, my colleagues over in China are working from home. Yeah. You know, Wuhan is a blue collar town in China. This is where commodities and metals are built. 
the economic impact that this has had on the global exchanges. Uh, it's injected a number of volatility, a, a large number of volatility into the markets. And it shows, and I was saying this to a source earlier today, or they, rather they were telling me, it shows that this is the one area that no matter which country you are, traders all over the world, Wall Street, and, and folks of all different backgrounds, this is a blind spot. You know, yeah. uh, SARS, whether it's SARS, coronavirus, swine flu, this is a blind spot, Brian. Yeah, it is. It's really scary. I think it's the unknown, the fear of the unknown. We, I mean, you do have the, the cases in the past, like with the Ebola right. virus and all that, where people got really scared and it wasn't as bad as they thought, but you just never know. I think it's the problem is we're seeing what's happening in China and people are getting scared because they don't know how bad it's going to get or if it's going to be contained. Well, and, and that's what's also interesting just to that point is I think we think of it from a fear standpoint, but you, th- you look at it from a tourism standpoint, from a trade standpoint, from a, from a you know, liquidity standpoint, and, and, and it has massive economic impacts. And that's why you saw some significant losses that were rebounded. But traders were trading off of coronavirus. Again, they're not trading on things like impeachment. Right. They are trading on things like this. And I, I find that interesting, Al. I mean, it could be a real black swan event, right? Like, yeah. never knew it was coming, and um, it's a great concern. I'm, again, like I said earlier, I'm really glad that we are involved. You mentioned SARS. Uh, we weren't then. China uh, kept everything close to the vest, didn't tell people the truth, uh, and so that actually creates more fear than transparency does, and they're late to the game but learning that. Yeah. All right, so what's on my radar? Jay Powell. Fed Ch- I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal. Of course, he had the press conference today. Uh, Fed Chair... Jay Powell said enough dovish things to lift odds of an interest rate rate cut in 2020, but stock investors walked away unimpressed. The S&P 500 fell 0.1% Wednesday, giving up the modest gains as the Fed chairman signaled the economy remains solid with, quote, strong labor market conditions, end quote. And this is the point I want to highlight, folks. So uh, he said Powell suggested that the Fed stands ready to act if the deadly virus in China looks likely to hamper growth and said elevated equity valuations are not at extremes, particularly when compared with bond prices. And the reason I mention this is because, again, Al, as you and I were just talking about the U.S. sending over folks and, and, and um, Kudlow saying that the, the U.S. is going to send over folks to China, this is on the central bank's radar. Yeah. For Fed Chair Jay Powell to give a press conference and to talk about the coronavirus in an economic lens, it shows that they are that the United States is taking this incredibly, incredibly seriously, and it also shows how these types of illnesses are a potential blind spot and volatility in the market. I mean, you don't know what strand of what flu of what virus could sink your portfolio, Brian. Well, what's scary to me also is the fact that the Fed has that much power over the economy that they can. Oh, I feel like I'm talking to Rand. Yeah, you are. There it is. There's the Rand. Audit the Fed. Audit the Fed. (laughs) Tell Rand Paul. You know what? Rand Paul should give me another interview, and we'll just we'll go down. Where is it? We'll go down to Fort Knox. Yeah. And we'll go into the to the gold. gold, See if there's gold. (laughs) Didn't he go with Mnuchin? Didn't I get that scoop years ago? Didn't he take Mnuchin or McConnell there? He's been there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Fascinating. All right. I want to thank Al. I want to thank Al. You want to come with us down to Fort Knox? I would love it. I'd love it. Never it, been there. You know? Yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. We'll get a crew and everything. Al, thanks for being here. He's a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Al Mater and Brian Darling, former comms director for Rand Paul of Kentucky and the founder of Liberty Government Affairs. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Check out my interview with Heath Tarbert on Bloomberg Television and, of course, on Bloomberg Radio. And download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.